Hey there, and welcome to The Deeper Podcast. It's great to have you listening. Now, if you're new to the podcast, this is a podcast that's all about how we live lives and unleash more courage and more love. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today we're diving into a new series that we're starting called Your Best Life. Now, as you heard me say that, you may have had a natural reaction of, ugh, what does that even mean? I, I'm not living that. Or maybe you're like, yeah, I am living my best life, and it is beautiful. As we've been walking with this series for a while, we've realized that this is actually a pretty challenging topic. It's a challenging topic because what our consumer society tells us about our best lives is a lie. You know, that our best lives can be bought, that it's a matter of sheer willpower to get there, and that we just need to transform our minds to be able to transform the world. We don't think that's the whole story. In fact, this this idea that our best lives are about freedom or perfectibility is actually something we're going to challenge. And we're going to say that the best life is not a perfect life. It's not the life where you have it all together, but it's actually the life in which we get to do it together. And so in this series, we're going to be exploring that. And we're going to begin today with a conversation that Reverend Elaine and I had about this idea of your best life. To begin, we're going to read an excerpt from Kate Bowler's new book, No Cure for Being Human. Now, Kate is a professor at Duke University, and she studies the cultural stories that we tell ourselves about success and suffering and whether or not we're capable of change. And she got a really interesting way into this conversation that she started studying the prosperity gospel movement which is this strand of evangelical Christianity that promises that God will reward you with health and wealth and all of the good stuff if only you have the right type of faith. And usually the right type of faith means giving a lot of money to your churches and that that's how God rewards you. And so her book, Blessed, A History of American Prosperity Gospel, kind of really um, launched her into the public sphere. But at age 35, she was diagnosed with an unexpected stage four cancer, which caused her to really think about her life and her research in new ways. And this new book, New Cure for Being Human, and and her new book really grapples with both ambition and faith and, and how she's come to terms with the limitations in a culture that really promises anything is possible. So we're going to start with that reading, and then we're going to move into the conversation with Elaine and I. That little phrase, best life now, is what Americans began using at the dawn of the 21st century to describe the satisfaction of mastering your life. Joel Osteen coined it in 2004, and almost overnight, everyone from Oprah to diet gurus to Hallmark movie starlets reached for it as the gold standard. How did you know you were truly living? You were living your best life now. You could see the fullness of your accomplishments spilling out of your Instagram account. The great triumph of the best life now paradigm is that it neatly summarized the promises of an entire American wellness industry. Everything is possible if you will only believe. You can find this confident message everywhere from mega churches to Burning Man, from Peloton to deluxe yoga retreats. Good vibes are good are big business. 
Modernity is a fever dream promising infinite choices and unlimited progress. We can learn how to be young forever, successful forever, agents of our own perfectibility. The American admiration for bootstrappers and optimists is a capitalist paradise. Everyone is now a televangelist for the gospel of good, better, best. Harness your mind to change your circumstances. The salvation of health and wellness and happiness is only a decision away. Will you finally let it save you? But I cannot outwork or outpace or outpray my cancer, writes Bowler. I can't dispel it with a can-do attitude. While I believe that there may be rich meaning at every crossroads of our lives, each meeting and departure, car accident or chance encounter, I do not believe that God will provide for every need or prevent every sorrow. From my hospital room, I see no master plan to bring me to a higher level, guarantee my growth, or use my cancer to teach me. Good or bad, I will not get what I deserve. Nothing will exempt me from the pain of being human. Today will be as ordinary as yesterday, days and weeks, working out the consequences of the moments that came before. We like to imagine that we are starring in an extended morality play where lessons are learned and the hero never dies. But in fact, we must make do with the fact that there will be weddings and funerals again this year, and everyone will still spend most of their evenings watching Netflix. This is a kind of freedom. The only question is how we should live under the burden of it. So I'm going to ask you a question here based on the reading we just heard. I'm wondering from your life, have you found yourself in a reality that you couldn't outpace or outpray and you couldn't manage it with a can-do attitude, but somehow you had an experience of meaningful connection or an experience, even a fulfillment experience in that context? The the moment that that comes to mind is early on when my husband and I were, were, we're parenting through foster care. And so we're foster parents. And that meant that we went from having zero children in our house to having a seven-year-old and a 13-year-old overnight when we began, which as you're like nodding of like, <laughs> like there's just a lot of like muscle memory that you build up. I think as a parent, if you start with a small child and, and work your way up through the ages with them that we like didn't have. And so like the first couple months were, were a really challenging experience because everything was new. We like, we were new to them. They were new to us. We were new to parenting. They were new to being parented by us who were new at parenting. It was just hard. You know, it was like, we were trying to learn two different languages at the same time and also keep up with all of the normal things of life. Mm-hmm. and the kids would never want to eat the food that we put in front of them. <laughs> we would go to bed like right after they would go to bed. It would be like they're in bed and now we're in bed because we were just exhausted. 
And there was so many appointments and so many changes in schedules and, you know, working with their mom to work on reunification. And I remember feeling pretty alone in it. And I, I remember pulling up Instagram on my phone and was just kind of scrolling through Instagram. And I noticed that all of my, like my friends or people in my network, my acquaintances, my Instagram friends, which are not always real friends, but they're kind of like, I don't know, vanity friends. A lot of the, the gay guys uh, were, were hitting their thirties. And so they started to realize that they needed to like go to the gym more. And so there was just all of these posts of how much time and how much progress they were making on their bodies in the gym and how amazing this was and how amazing their trips were to Mexico and to all of these places exotic around the world, looking at them living what seemed like their best lives. I mean, from Instagram, it seems from the pages of a magazine, like transform your body in 30 days and live your best life in Costa Rica. And I was trying to figure out if it was okay to reuse the pan that we made mac and cheese in yesterday to like make something today without having to really clean it. <laughs> and it was like, is, is this my best life? Was and, that your best life? Was that my best? The, the part that like confounded me was how the part of me that looked at them wanted what they were having wasn't, wasn't the deepest part of me, mm -hmm. the, the fantasy of their lives couldn't hold a candle to the reality of trying to help a kid who is struggling with being away from his mom fall asleep every night, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though I'd have to like lay on the ground for like 45 minutes to an hour every single night to try to get the little one to fall asleep. Like there was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't actually trade it. Like I want to escape to it, but I wouldn't want to trade it. Um, and when I realized that, I don't know, it just shifted something in me of like what, what I might've imagined my life was going to be and what I actually wanted. Yeah. I'm curious, could you describe a little more that part of yourself that desired the Instagram best life of muscle bound lounging. Right. Muscle bound lounging. That's a great question. On one hand, the part of me that listens to like the, the, the societal story of what should be mm -hmm. the ego place of wanting other people to not idolize, but like, want what I have. Like, I feel like looking at other parents, no offense, but there's like, <laughs> when we're honest with each other, there's like few moments in which I'm like, Oh, give me that. <laughs> right. And so there's something about like them living a life in which others would desire to live that, that was alluring. The other part of that was getting married and becoming a parent were two moments in which ideally you're saying yes to something forever. You're making a commitment. That's like you and me, like we're, we're a thing mm -hmm. and, 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 and I'm, I'm committed to this thing. And it's not just until it gets 
hard. And so like looking at their lives, it felt, and this is from the outside. So like, I don't want to make claims that what's actually going on in their lives. This is all about me and what's going on in my brain, but like looking at their lives, there, there isn't that sense of being tied down, tied to people, annoying people, people that have needs that I have to take care of and that I have to be responsive to. Like there's a freedom there that, that was definitely like, yeah, I want a little bit of that freedom. Can I, can I have a little bit of that? So the freedom looks so good. I hear, and I can completely relate to the desire to have the freedoms and pleasures that we see other people having. But I wonder if there's some aspect of those commitments and those ties that bind you to your people, to your husband and your kids that were feeding an actual real life, best life at that time. Yes. I, I mean, that's why when I looked at like the Instagram life and looked at my life and realized that it's not Instagrammable, <laughs> the, the desire to want that was, was, a, was about fantasy and, and not about reality. Because when I think of what gives me like the most like deep belly satisfaction, a sense of this is my place in the universe that is the Sean-shaped hole in the universe, being a partner and being a parent or some of the few Sean shape holes that feel completely mine. And that when I'm in them, it's not always pleasurable, but it has a deep sense of uh, belonging. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this, this is mine. We are each other's. And like that, that sense of being dependent on and, and belonging together. I like, I wouldn't give that up. Like if I, and if I tried to give it up when the kids, went back with their mom, I had this like huge identity crisis of like, am I a parent anymore? And realizing, yeah, like actually we're like, we're bound up how it looks changes, but we're still in this together. They've done a lot of studies on, on parenting and whether or not parents are happier than non-parents. And the data kind of shakes out that it's that whether or not you're a parent doesn't really matter in terms of your overall happiness, but that when you look at people who are parents, the, the highs that they go to and the lows that they go to are much greater than those folks that don't have kids. And of course, it's an average. So I'm not saying like, hey, if you don't have kids, your life is going to be amazing and, and even and simple. It's like these are like big, big averages. But I don't know if I would trade the highs and, and even the lows for, for something else. I wonder if those really are just confined to parenting or if it's really just that when you allow yourself to be deeply depended on and you allow yourself to deeply depend on someone else, um, like the stakes are high and the bonds are deep and that's how you get to those high highs and low lows. I think you're exactly right. I felt like when I was scrolling my Instagram, it was pretty divided and the dividing line because I was like 30 was kids mm -hmm. and it was like parents living their messy lives and non-parents living their pristine lives. But I think you're actually right. Cause when I took off that lens, you know, there were a lot of people that were not parents, but were building relationships of that, that degree of dependence. Mm -hmm. And that, and that could be through the way they live in their community and their neighborhoods, the way they show up in their job spaces the way they show up with their friends, that there were those relationships that caused that to happen. I think it's easier to see with kids because they're 
like dependent in a way that as adults, we can like pretend that we don't need each other in ways that kids like just can't. Mm -hmm. But yet I think you're exactly right. It is completely there. And so as I think about like my best life, my best life actually comes from limiting my freedom to just do what I want and being bound up with other people. Even though my natural inclination sometimes is to try to be self-sufficient and not be needed. So I just want to uh, repeat that because I think that's really uh, amazing what you just said, that you living your best life looks like you placing constraints on your freedoms and allowing yourself to be bound up in commitments to doing life with other people. Yes. And so I wonder, it's really clear to me how to feed the part of myself that desires all of the self-improvement and all of the vacations and all of the wellness regimes and all these self-perfecting things were sold. I know how to feed that part of myself that wants that best life. Mm -hmm. How do you feed the part of yourself that knows that truly living your best life comes from a deeper place that involves relinquishing freedoms in exchange for um, like pretty intense reciprocal dependence? <laughs> Or how, I, I, maybe that sounds too fancy. Just no, how I, do you feed that part of yourself so that you kind of want the thing that is more deeply satisfying, even if it isn't immediately gratifying all the time. Right. Like, how do you want what you need rather than want the fantasy? Yeah. I, I, I read this somewhere that when you look at your neighbor's lawn, it <laughs> actually does look greener. Like we perceive it in our minds as being better and it has something to do with like the physics of angles. <laughs> That's the first thing is to know that like we are biased to think that other people have it more together and that are living better lives than us. Because I know all of the, I was going to swear, all of the stuff that goes on in me and, and I don't always I don't know, and I don't always think about all of the stuff that might be going on in other people. I don't know if you've had an experience where, you know, a friend of yours, the, the, the person that you thought had it all together, suddenly you realize they really don't. Oh, I've had even stupider experiences than that as an adult. <laughs> right. Like, hey, this person I just met who's like uh, really physically attractive and has a great house oh, look, they also have problems. I'm surprised by that. Right. You're like, oh, wait, what? They have problems? I, but I'm getting to the point where I'm like suspicious. <laughs> I'm like, if I meet someone that seems like they have it together, I'm like, like putting on like a Sherlock's home hat of like, <laughs> let's find the problem. That's maybe my own stuff. But so I think that's the first thing. It was like no, noticing that tension of like my own bias to think that other people have it together and I don't. Yeah. I think the other part is that when you're in the the yo-yo of dependence, it can be too, it's easy to get caught just in the moment in, in a way that you can't see the arc of what's happening. Especially in parenting, sometimes you work really hard to help your kid work through something and the thanks you get is that they move on to something else that they need to be helped with. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to be like, yay, we accomplished this big thing because like, there's another thing that you need to work on. 
and work together on. And then that's like also true for, with, like within me, you know, as I'm working on something in a relationship, it's hard to be like, oh, wow, I did an amazing job of not being defensive and reactive in that moment because now I'm also in tune with how I need to be a little bit more proactive in this relationship. <laughs> so I think it's both being able to zoom out and to notice the, the movements that are there and the depth that's there. But also it's about in the moment being able to appreciate the experience of being, of being in it and not getting lost in all that needs to be done and simply like finding a way to like rest in that belonging and delight in it and find joy in it. Even if it's like not the thing that you think you want or need. It sounds in a way like not avoiding the temptation to mentally Instagram your life at the wrong moments. Right. Yeah. This pain point isn't going to last forever or this conversation or, or learning experience we're in together is part of a process that flows together with all kinds of other processes in our relationship. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I feel on the spot for a while. I want to turn it to you. I feel like one of the things that I love about you is how you, I think, are able to delight in moments and to notice when delight is not in moments. Like, I'm wondering how, how you orient to this, this frame of your best life and the, the kind of perfection of, of the story that we have in society about what it means to be living our best life. Yeah. Well, I'm generally a person who's just resists superlatives. So if you ask me my favorite color or my favorite food, I'm going to really struggle telling you my number one thing. And so the idea of a best life seems just inherently problematic um, because I think there are multiple paths we can take that will bring us joy and meaning in multiple ways. But I think part of my problem with it is that you know, to draw on our reading from earlier, this idea that life is perfectible or that to live your best life is an experience of achievement or mastery mm. over life. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, that's not my best life because as much as I uh, fantasize about perfection and achievement, I know that that's not that that's not being in the flow of life. That's like crossing a certain finish line or a certain threshold or leveling up. And to me, really being in the richness and the thick and complication of life is about being in process. So there's something about mastery and perfection and achievement that doesn't leave any space for creativity. It doesn't leave any mm. space for God. It doesn't leave space to, for spontaneity and to feel inspired by what, wherever it is that love is calling you or feeling your way into the next right step. It just feels really static and frankly, kind of boring. And maybe that's the part of me <laughs> that also, you know, on my best days can delight in the small things is that life and people are endlessly interesting. And so if I can't have a posture of curiosity or that kind of beginner's mind, if I feel like I've got it all figured out, I lose connection with that lens that helps 
me find experience life as an ongoing series of discoveries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you like that sense of achieving your best life, it, it like freezes. It's like, okay, we've arrived. And then it's like, well, this is boring. Well, yeah, it's like a, it's a stopping place. It's a parking lot. That's not where I want to hang out. Is there a moment that you're like, yeah, I am living my best life in the flow of the universe, not because I've perfected it, but because I've been able to notice what is uh, beautiful and joyful in this moment? All right. Well, this is just me, but I, you know, as we're talking about this theme, I was thinking, when have I recently felt like, yeah, I'm living my best life. And a couple of nights ago, the kids were in bed. Jason, I think was like playing a video game with his sister and I, the house was quiet. And I got into our new recliner and I covered myself up with my favorite blankets and I got all the treats I wanted. So I got a cup of hot tea, but I also got a popsicle. And I also got a bowl of pretzels and I had just gotten my favorite magazine in the mail and I opened to an article that I wanted to read. And in that moment, I, <laughs> I think it was something about being covered with blankets and surrounded by snacks just on the precipice of reading something new. And I thought, oh, I'm living my best life. <laughs> I love that image. I'm just seeing you with the like, I can't just, I can't just have one. I, I don't just want pretzels. I think that's my, one of my favorite things to do is figure out a way to feel a lot of abundance within my means. So mm. last winter I got five different flavors of the same lip gloss and I lined them up on my windowsill and looking at that every day, I just felt like the richest person in the world. Mm. You know, this is little stuff and I don't mean to be making light of the very, you know, life is serious, risky business. Mm -hmm. It's a risk to love and let ourselves be loved and needed. But I do think wherever we can put little markers in our lives that, uh, that signal to us that possibility is out there. Mm -hmm. I find that helpful. Am I going off on a tangent? No, I, I think it's, it's really connected. What, what I hear in this is like the temptation to think that we can't experience the fullness of life and the goodness of life until something else, until we've mastered something, we've perfected something. I'm not going to project, but there might have been dishes in your sink when you were doing this. <laughs> there are always messes in my house. And you know, Sean, my life is also filled with constantly hearing my own psychic stories about my life will start when. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's another piece of that. I guess that's, I battle that with my lip glosses and my bowls of pretzels because I know it's a lie, but I think it all the time and about the, just the stuff that I, that makes me the maddest. Like my life will begin when I can fit into those jeans again, or my life will begin when I fix all of my little bad habits or my life will begin once I start this regime of really committing to eat whole foods all the time. Or my life will begin once I figure out this practice of waking up early in the morning. And that's just going to be the magic that fixes everything. My life will begin after this heartache is over. Mm -hmm. I'm always doing that. 
and I know it's a lie. What do you, what purpose does it serve? It lets me off the hook. So I think part of the deal is that I feel disappointed in uh, the deficiencies and frustrations and pain points of my current life. Mm -hmm. But if I set up the story where there's just some threshold that I can get to through a sheer act of will and discipline, then I'll just start living then. And then I, I'm no longer tasked with finding the meaning and connection and satisfaction in my current life, which is always a jumble of everything. Right. It, it's that sense of, I don't need to pay attention now or notice now, or this doesn't count. This isn't real. This yeah. time isn't real. This moment isn't real. Like it, it doesn't matter. I, I mean, that's where I, I connect to that sense of realizing that the, you know, the most meaningful parts of my life are when I really experience the, the moment as mattering. And so if you've like discounted this moment because, you know, it's only in the future mm -hmm. <laughs> that it will really matter, then, it, then it's hard to experience the, the meaning of it. And, 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 and the fullness of it, which is sometimes high and sometimes low. The other part that I'm thinking about is just how in the reading, when she talks about how you can't man pray your way out of cancer, that like the story of living our best lives, it veers dangerously close. Well, and actually not just close. It sometimes embodies this sense of you're, you're the problem. Mm hmm right? If your mindset creates reality, then if you're having, if, if anything in your life is wrong, it's your fault. If only you were manifesting correctly or having the right sort of thoughts, practicing the right sort of discipline and willpower, that then your life wouldn't be like it. And because your life is like this, it is your fault. The problem with that is that when we have painful feelings or when we feel sad, if that's an indication that we're doing something wrong, then we're not going to let ourselves get into it. Mm. And we, mm. then there's no opportunity to swim through the sadness or the disappointment or the grief or the anxiety, whatever it is, and, yeah. and swim to the other side of it. Right. So you end up with this just stockpile of stunted emotions. Right. That's why I go to church. I go to church because it's not just the message that tells me that I have inherent worth and dignity. There's nothing wrong with me that the trials and tribulations of life aren't an indication of how well I'm doing life or how deserving I am of joy or pleasure or a good life. It's not just that message, but it's coming into a shared space with other people every week and being reminded of what we all live with. Mm -hmm. Whether it is a loss from decades ago or whether it's heartbreak that we're in the midst of right now. And I just can't think of any other space that I'm a part of where we are so regularly so real about what it's like to be human. Mm. Just that normalizing of the high highs and low lows of being human in relationship is such a gift that we give to each other. Yeah. I feel like so many of my sermons begin with, hey, look, I'm kind of a mess, 
I did something <laughs> wrong. And, and that's partly because it's true. Those things happen, but also because of exactly what you say. It's so important for us to create a space in which we can be honest about what is going on in our lives. Because even at church, it's easy to look at other people and think, oh, well, they have it all together. Mm -hmm. They're living their best life. They are able to manage that and I'm not. And so there's something about stepping into the vulnerability when, when I'm preaching, but also the vulnerability I see in our community in small groups, in one-on-one -on -one moments in which we reveal to each other the reality of our lives, which is, which is messy. And yet we're held in, in a sense of um, belonging. It's like, yeah, welcome, welcome to the human family. And I don't say that in like a dismissive way. It's like, yes, this is what it means to be human. And I'm there with you. Yeah, it's the opposite of the social media living your best life. It's all happening in real time. And when we're at our best, we accompany each other through whatever it is that's going on. And we remind each other that life goes on. Mm -hmm. I think part of what I find so moving about Foothills is anytime I enter any space with other people, I feel so aware of the resilience in that space because you know that everybody has been through something yeah, and they're still here. And that they have wisdom to share about it. Yeah. And that our, our work is to, as you spoke so eloquently about is to find that beginner's mind mm -hmm. to be able to unearth that with each other and to step into the vulnerability of showing that with each other. Mm-hmm. Of not letting the the veneer of the the ego that the wanted to be emulated or wanted to be adored that I was confessing about myself to be the end of the story in terms of how we relate to one another. You know what's so funny about that is that you know I can really relate. There is a part of me that wants to project perfection because I think it will make me more lovable. Yeah. And the irony there is that I think the parts of ourselves that people are most drawn to are our most real and vulnerable parts. Yeah. That's so true. I still love having conversations like that with Elaine. She has a, a deep wisdom and an understanding about others that just makes me so grateful to have her as a colleague and to receive the gifts of her her ministry at Foothills. So I'm just I'm just full of smiles right now. Well, that, that about wraps up this episode of The Deeper Podcast. We're continuing next week with our series, Your Best Life. And we'd love to hear from you if there's a moment in your life, a decision that really helped you live your best life, especially in a way that isn't just about that outer ego, but about the deep belonging that we feel in the life that is together. Get in touch at deeperpod at D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsuu.org. Once again, thanks for listening. We get to do this podcast and reach hundreds of you every week because of the financial generosity of people who support our community. So if you haven't found your way to support, we'd so love for you to do so, to join this community. You can do so at foothillsuu.org slash give. All right, until next week, thanks for listening.